really high permitting costs lead to homelessness, which creates all sorts of other socioeconomic problems that undermine a community in a way. So I just kind of saw a parallel there. Am I crazy? No, I don't think not. Not like Michael Saylor. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Coming to you from the, coming to you from the, coming to you from the L to the V player. No, based on your internet connection, you're coming to me from like Costa Rica or Peru. <laughs> from 1989? <laughs> yeah. You're not in like the ritziest place in the world. You're in a third world country right now. I'm <laughs> sure of it. It is surprising. How come on, hotels? How can you not now hold on? Actually, before I even finish that sentence, to be fair, when you have been hacked and like ransomed, maybe keeping your internet afloat is not the most high priority item. Mm, I don't know about no, that. No I excuses. think maybe their tech guys unionized this week. Uh, as part, it's a great time actually. If Vegas is getting hacked, it's a good yeah. time for those IT guys to negotiate. That, that is that is true. That is true. Oh, I'm excited for you to get out here, man. So I I am also excited. We're gonna do some in person Skippy and Diggles time this weekend in Vegas. But tell me about this. Is, like, is this not the best and worst investing podcast in the world? Because who gets investing recommendations from some dude that? sits at a poker table in Vegas all night long. I mean, Diggles, I think you need to have a serious... No. Um, Dude, you need I, some reflection. So while I was sitting at this poker table, I was thinking about... We've, we've discussed it, and it was just hitting me more and more how analogous the two things are. Poker and investing, is they're so similar. You have to... If you do it well, right? Got to be patient. Choose your places. Mm-hmm. Uh, when When you find them, have to make sure that you're alive, right? To be able to take advantage. Uh, it's kind of because if you if all your capital's gone and you find a great deal, then it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's sim- okay. very similar. So the the analogies there, psychology, the analogy around capital allocation, bet sizing, all that stuff sitting there. So come on now. You ask me that question, I say the best, the best, not the okay. worst, the best. Come on, though. The whole Annie up thing, that's what drives me crazy. Because you effectively have to play with poker. And in investing, you can just sit sit by and wait till the juicy deals come, like I'm doing right now. Yeah, you need you have to force action sometimes at the poker table. That's true. So. Yep, because otherwise it'd just be people sitting around uh, drinking exactly. Red Bull, exactly. wearing sunglasses. So. I was coaching the soccer team this week, and to my surprise, 10-year-olds are very excited about Las Vegas. So I don't know what YouTube is doing to our youth, but Las Vegas <laughs> has been glamorized and I'm very concerned. <laughs> Should we hop in? Let's do it. All right. Doogles, I got fired up this week. I get fired up almost every week. I was joking about it last week, but my Kathy Wood appeared. It was delivered to me via social media. I was trying to avoid it like the plague. And uh, it was your boy, Dave Ramsey. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's an aggressive <laughs> statement. I did, I did that just to mess with you. <laughs> Talking about how easy it is to beat the S&P 500, how he his a- average annual returns are, thir- are 12 to 13%. He crushes the S&P like it ain't no thing. This is a dude that brands himself as 
giving advice to like novice investors. So first of all, it's incredibly difficult to beat the S&P 500 or almost any other reasonable index out there. Second of all, when he quotes those figures, I'm I'm ready to go on the record with 99.9% certainty that he just managed to forget about his bankruptcy in 1988, Dougals. <laughs> when he lost it all, when he had a $4 million real estate portfolio that was highly leveraged, like I, it just drives me crazy. I think the main thing I'm frustrated about here is an offhanded comment like that that says, oh, it's easy to beat the S&P 500 because the people that are listening to his show are the ones that go, well, Dave Ramsey told me to do this, so it must be a piece of cake. And those people are going to recreate his 1988 self self, and not have any money. Well, his even his average returns, the way he stated it, I could tell that that was not true. Because <laughs> it was so offhanded because he doesn't <laughs> actually know. Well, he says something. This is It's going to be close enough, quote, what I'm about to say here. It says, on average, my returns are 12%, some years 13%. Like your average can't, you don't, do you know what I mean? That's a, that well, statement like does not make sense if you're talking about your average annualized returns. And I'm not, you know, he's a big real estate guy. I'm not claiming he's doing this. I know some real estate investors with that when they talk about their average return, that's all in calculating a current mark to market of what they think their real estate has hold, neglecting their, the risk that comes with leverage. And uh, including the depreciation benefits they get for taxes. So it's like this made up fancy number that one, if you have all those assumptions built in, is not at all comparable to the S&P because the S&P doesn't have any of those crazy like, <laughs> oh, and here's my tax benefit and here's everything else. Yeah. I just got fired up, man. I just don't like this. I think this is garbage. Yeah. It, it's dangerous to your to what you stated earlier. It's dangerous. And that's what that's why it's sucky. Because when you have a platform like his, so many people listen to him, watch his show. And when you say nonsense like this, it's dangerous. Borderline criminal. And before I get off my soapbox, one of the things that you and I are both passionate about on this show is like investor education, getting more people in the game, understanding yep. basic principles. Yep. That's what I like about his show in a way. Like there is some quality principles that he i think he does help a lot of people generate more wealth but when you make offhanded comments like this oh it's easy to be the s&p 500 no no <laughs> no that does way no. more harm than good oh you want to talk about more harm than good what was crack a lacking the all-in folks who we we've discussed the podcast a few times here all-in folks have this conference apparently i don't even know i knew that it existed but there's this conference and there's a talk on the internet, on the YouTubes, from this conference by Bill Gurley. And Bill Gurley is one of the people we bring up a bunch on here talking about how he is wiser than the wisest. And he was spitting some such interesting wisdom. We love Bill Gurley. And so much, I was shocked that the all-in guys could get it because I think Bill Gurley is more sane than the all-in guys at this point. But props to them. <laughs> this one... Gosh, this talk to Eagles talks a lot about regulatory capture, a lot about how corrupt our politicians are. I found it really engaging um, and generally factual. I think there's a few things you can take, you know, you can debate with the way he pre presents the facts, but I really like Bill Gurley and I really loved this talk. Let me back up. I'm going to define regulatory capture for a second. This is, and tell me if, if you think this is a fair definition. 
when you have regulation, so government, and he's talking about the U.S. specifically, the government comes in and it decides to regulate an industry. There's value that is created and or destroyed from that regulation. And regulatory capture is value that can be, um, that accrues to specific companies within that industry. That's regulatory capture he's talking about. Is that a, I think that's a good definition? Yeah, but where you're ultimately going, I was trying to find this exact uh, quote from him, but where you're ultimately going is Bill Gurley presenting this overarching uh, guiding principle of the talk that says regulation benefits the incumbent. And so if you're meta and um, TikTok right now, you want social media uh, to be more regulated because it makes it harder for new entries to come into play. If you're a cable company like Comcast, you want the Comcast industry to be more heavily regulated by the government because it makes it harder for new players to get through those barriers and entries. And he gives examples throughout the speech of how we shouldn't be surprised when someone like Zuckerberg or the Comcast execs or the the AT&T execs yeah, go, go to D.C. and say, oh, it's really important that you guys regulate this issue because that creates a huge advantage for the legacy players. And he, he shows the data that he shows here. Uh, I, I think the telecom one was probably the most like stark because he looked at level of investment in telecom that existed like throughout the 90s. And then when the regulation hits in the late 90s, early 2000s, can't remember exactly when it was, you just see the cliff of investment. And so it goes, it's increasing investment, increasing investment, increasing investment, then nothing is effectively what happens. And he showed that in telecom. Uh, He also demonstrated that in uh, the EHR software, so electronic health record software with with a company called Epic. And it's, the data reads as undeniable in the way that he... Uh, he put it out at least that the storyline that he had here. And in, to your point, if you are established already in the space, then reg- regulation that's going to make bigger hurdles for other people to come in nails it. And the thing I think this was with the uh, the electronic health record software when the regulation came in, it described the feature set that you would need in order to <laughs> to be um, in line with regulation. Feature set. Like this is if you're if you're epic at this point and you can work with the regulators to say, well, here are the features that we have and then they can put that into a bill. They are going to be a direct beneficiary of that regulation. And so you can see and it might be because it's altruistic. But from this, you can see where a Sam Altman right now with a new when generative AI is just like coming about and they are the dominant player right now. Him going to Washington in his little button up every other day. You can see why. Yeah, there's two points you mentioned that I want to hammer home. So uh, one is this healthcare records provider called Epic, who was tasked to be on the, I'm going to call it a task force, but like the governing body to create some legislation for Obamacare. And it's exactly what you said. They said, in order to get government funds, you need to have these features. Well, they're a company that's been around for a while. Those features were fairly well developed. And by doing that, you make it so your new player in the space that would build a minimum viable product that would raise venture funds that would go disrupt the industry, you make the barrier of entry so much greater because you say, this is what's required. And so Epic is just basically since then has been cashing checks because there's no little guys coming up to disrupt the space. You also mentioned 
the venture funding for like telecoms. The point that I don't know is crystal clear there is Bill Gurley is saying, and he's right, that the reason venture funding is falling off a cliff and eventually gone to zero for startup telecoms is because you can't create a startup in the space because there's too much regulation to even get there. You'd have to go, you know, have $50 billion or some ridiculous sum. So yeah, I'm totally with you. I just um, thought this was incredibly thought provoking. It's called 2,851 miles, which happens to be the distance between Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. Watch this talk. It's phenomenal. We'll put it on the, the sub stack. It's so funny. This talk actually reminded me a little bit of another article I read online recently that talked specifically about, I've talked about this before, the tie between housing prices and homelessness. And effectively, the number one driver of homelessness is a high cost of real estate. But and maybe this, in a way, ties back to the Mr. Money Mustache article we talked about last week, Deagles. It, the high cost of real estate, one of the things that's controllable there, rather than just supply and demand, is total cost of permitting. So like, some reason for me, the Bill Gurley's points on regulatory capture really related to like high permitting costs in areas where it's complete overkill to have that permitting. And then the unintended consequence in... Bill Gurley's eyes with this talk of regu- high regulatory capture and high regulation is the legacy players get dominant positions, their profit margins increase, and you kill startups in the space. I think if you make the parallel to housing, and maybe I'm crazy here, really high permitting costs lead to homelessness, which creates all sorts of other socioeconomic problems that undermine a community in a way. So I just kind of saw a parallel there. Yeah. Am I crazy? No, I don't think not. not like Michael Saylor. Are we spending any time talking <laughs> no, about Michael Saylor on this? I don't podcast, think so. Just, when you when you say the word crazy, I just think about Michael Saylor. The one of the one of the other points that wasn't the core of the talk, but that I think was interesting in this too, is that Bill Gurley was saying he can have this conversation and raise these points now because of where he is in his career. He's like, nobody's gonna let me into Washington now. That I'm throwing all this out, but he doesn't need to go to Washington, which is different than when you if he was earlier in his VC career or he was trying to start a company, then you you might need some ties, right? But he's just like, I can say whatever I want. His career is he's 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 done, right? Uh, he doesn't need to need anyone or anything at this point. And so it's kind of a sad reality in a way. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. The example that he starts off the talk with is he's early in his VC career trying to launch a new company. And there's some regulation that gets in the way of that. This was basically citywide Wi-Fi. Um, it was a company that could provide that. And he implies that he had mayors from all over the country that were really eager to sign up and create revenue for this startup. So he's super excited about that. He realized there's some regulation that stands in the way of that. And so he kind of put on his lobbying hat. And I'll cut to the chase here, Dougals. Effectively, the way he was able to get meetings that he wanted to get, but the demands for checks to donations basically were a little ridiculous. And he says that opened his eyes to all the other things that were happening here. Yep. And then talk specifically about like lobbying folks at Comcast and, and people called <laughs> The, what, what was it? The most powerful unelected official? Oh, yeah. Um, like, how, are, how are those two know, words? Like, how do those two words go together? 
it's a good talk, guys. Seriously, it's like 30 minutes. You can listen to it 1.5 times if you need to. But I think it's really thought-provoking. All right, what you got next? I got a quote. I like this quote. This is from our boy, Lee Lu. We walked through an in-depth presentation of him, I think two or three weeks back. Simple quote. It says, part of the game in investing is to coming your own. You must find some way that perfectly fits your personality. Yeah, it's something we've talked about a bunch in here. I think he captures it beautifully. There are many investing styles you could potentially have. You just have to make sure that it fits your psychology. I love it. Yeah, and that's this is just so crude, true to being able to succeed in investing because you just mentioned it with poker, right? Half of it is staying in the game, maybe more. And if you're trying to invest the way Drunken Miller invests or the way Buffett invests or the way Kathy Wood invests or whoever, and I threw in Kathy Wood just for you, Douglas, <laughs> um, and that's not how your brain thinks about this challenge, then you're going to panic, right? So I, I think it's important to study the greats. Hopefully, it's important to laugh at our podcast occasionally and get some wisdom that way. But ultimately, you need to figure out what fits your personality for a long-term investment in assets that can grow over time. And if you don't do that, you have no chance of succeeding. And you're definitely not going to pull a Dave Ramsey and beat the S&P 500. Definitely not. No, you're going to be the person pointing in the mirror at yourself, <laughs> tell, telling yourself <laughs> that you're, you're great. Over the long term, it's got to be you. Because you, you have to stick with yourself over decades. right? The, the, the thing that will not change is that it is you. And so if you are not true to you, then how are you going to, how are you going to stick with anything? You don't even know what you're sticking to exactly. So I, uh, I think this is this and don't listen to Dave Ramsey are the two biggest points I've taken away so far in this podcast. Love it. What's in your fishbowl? Distrust of government. Let's, let's actually stick on that theme here for a sec. Go to Bill Gurley talking about regulatory capture. Then there's this Guardian piece called U.S. economy going strong under Biden. Americans don't believe it. This was a exclusive, as they stated, exclusive poll that The Guardian put out asking folks about their perceptions, opinions on how the economy is going. And what it demonstrates is people just do not believe what I would call in some of these. What I'm going to drop is just a couple facts. But I, I mean, I guess if you don't believe them, then you wouldn't call them facts. But to me, they're just facts. I'll give you an example. There was a question around where unemployment sat. 51% of people that were polled believe that unemployment is near a 50-year high. 60% of people that identify as Republican, 40% of people that identify as Democrat, 53% of people that identify as Independent. Unemployment Wait. Is, is near a 50-year low right now. Yeah, I mean, hold up here. I don't, I really don't want to interrupt. This is insane. <laughs> <laughs> I know this is like the exact opposite fact, and and it'd be one thing if unemployment was above ten percent, like only forty years back when half these people weren't born. Unemployment during COVID was like fifteen percent yep. when everyone got laid off initially because yes. we didn't know what was going to happen to the world. How do you conflate those? Like, how dumb are these people, or how bad are these? It's just like not. Years? It's just not believing. I because I think people they they grab onto themes. So a theme might be. Biden is terrible. Therefore, the economy under Biden is terrible. Right. And so I'm not going to believe any data that goes against that belief. Here's another one. Grab onto your chair here for a second. 
59% of respondents said they believe the S&P 500 is down this year. I mean, that that's not even government data. Like that that's just like pull up whatever you want. The S&P 500 at this point in time was up 16%. It, it's a, I don't know. I think, I think it ends up when you hold on to an ideological like stream of facts, you just ignore something that's just sitting in front of your face. This gets back to that Netflix movie was it just look up something like that it was called and yeah when you know when everyone's like there's not a meteor you go just i mean the thing is flaming through the sky right now do you not see the meteor there were other there were many other facts because there's like perceptions that are saying like how's the economy going right so there's a bunch of stuff that's in this uh in this article i pulled out these ones in particular because they felt the most to me like there is just a fact like it's not about perception there is a number it exists and you were looking at that number and then telling me whether or not you believe that that number is a number. Well, hold on though. How much of this is due to the fact that there's poor financial literacy in this country? Like you mentioned 59% of people think the S&P 500 is down. I forget the number. You might know it, Dougals, but like I think only 50% of people in this country actually own stocks in the first place. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there might be some of that going on. Also, there's this narrative bias and I, I don't know that I can articulate this well, but I think often our brains are uh, more easily believe a negative narrative than a positive narrative. And so it that's like one of the advantages of, I think, Trump to use an example, but I'm sure there's better ones. If you have a, qu- a great talking point that, you know, that just says X is horrible, um, that registers with people regardless of what the facts actually are how much is that of that might be going on here too i I think i think that's where a lot of it is there's an overarching narrative that folks have in their heads and then they're just going to state data that backs up that narrative i I think that that is where where it sits right now and the the narrative that around negativity to your point is it feels better it feels smarter for people to grab onto, as we discussed in the past. So I, I do think that's part of it, but it's it's scary to me. Like this kind of thing is scary to me. Okay, so let's just set the record straight on these two things, because I don't like talking about how both political parties just yell that the other one is stupid these days because that registers with people's brains. So current unemployment is about 3.4%, which is the lowest in 54 years. And basically, the lowest we've ever seen. I remember long ago in some of my economics classes in college, there was debate at that time about like a four-ish percent unemployment being the best that developed societies can do. And some arguments for uh, unemployment rate less than that actually being detrimental to a society because there's not enough movement between positions and locations, and locales. And this is less. Yes. The second point that we need to set the record straight here, Dougals, I actually don't know that I have. With what, the S&P's up 15-ish percent? Some, it's something like that. I'm not yeah. sure what something happened like last that. week. It's something okay. like that. Certainly not down. No matter no matter what, the, there's a plus sign in front of the number. <laughs> <laughs> pretty solid plus sign. Yeah, pretty, pretty solid plus sign. Facts. If we can't even align on the facts, because I'm, I'm very down. I mean, as you know, and there's kind of a theme behind this whole podcast, I'm very down to have disagreements around perception, around insights, around takeaways, 
you can take the same set of data and have different takeaways. It's actually a beautiful thing. But if you can't align around what the facts are, then takeaways become nonsensical. It's, it's all just general belief. And so what I'm trying to say is, can we, we can, we can say unemployment is three point whatever percent. And I hate Joe Biden. And I go, cool. Like I'm, cool. I'm game, I'm game yeah. for that. But what is confusing and or dangerous to me is when we say unemployment is at a 50 year high and I hate Joe Biden. So then I'm like, well, I mean, is the second thing also not true? Because the first thing you said wasn't true. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know who you hate at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kinda... Facts are messed up. Um, speaking of which, Doogles, uh, so we take listener mail at Skippy Doogles, uh, or sorry, SkippyDoogles at gmail.com. This Twitter is at Skippy Doogles. And uh, we got some quality listener mail this week. We're not going to get to this week, but uh, last week I ranted about how there's nothing to buy and we had some quality uh, listeners send some stuff our way that we're looking into. So hopefully we'll talk about that next week. I think in the spirit of uh, kind of nonsense of throwing out stock picks, I have a pet rabbit in my front yard. I think I'd like the pet rabbit to start picking stocks to compete against you and I oh. to see who really knows their stuff on the financial literacy front. Are you down with that? So are you just going to put out like a bunch of tiles with tickers on the front lawn and wherever the rabbit poos yeah that could work i mean it's basically it's the equivalent of monkeys throwing darts i just don't have a monkey handy uh but i could go to the zoo or something if we want to and hijack a monkey i don't think it's worth (laughs) you stealing animals i do have a connection at the zoo i think i could get into the monkey's cage Uh, i'll anyway shoot us some (laughs) listener mail uh if you like this idea or if you have Quality research recommendations, as we call them. And we'll talk about some of those things next week. Kind of a crowdsourced uh, stock research recommendation pick. Is it okay if we switch gears? Because I have another question for you. Yeah, go for it. You sent me this tweet. I don't know if you're educated about it or not, but I'm fascinated and I want to look into this. It says, it's talking specifically about Singapore. And it says, despite Singapore's success, not a single other country has adopted a policy of paying government employees high salaries to attract talent and reduce corruption. Does Singapore pay like, does their president make like 40 million bucks? And like, do do their senior leaders make really competitive salaries? Because if so, I love that idea. It's a good question. I'm going to do some real quick research here. Singapore government salaries. Let's see. The, oh, okay, hold up. These cannot be U.S. dollars. I guess these cannot be U.S. dollars because what I'm seeing here is 2.2 million. So let me see what the. Oh, uh, but that would be kind of fair. Prime Singapore, Minister. Um, dollar to USD. 0. 0.73. Oh my goodness. Okay, so so yes, if this if this is accurate, then what we're looking at is the prime minister of Singapore, $2.2 million. So if we're talking, let's just do rough. If it's 0.7, roughly, you're looking at about $1.5 million is what the prime minister makes. The deputy prime minister, $1.9 million. Uh, so yeah, if this is accurate, Singapore would be paying some cashola. I mean, it's like, you're, effectively, you're saying if you were running a... I don't know what Singapore's GDP is, but, you know, multi-billion dollar, like tens of billion dollar, whatever, like organization, what's a fair wage? Okay, so the, I found this fascinating and I have um, 
have like 10 salaries in front of me again in Singapore dollars, but roughly they're comparable. And the preliminary secretary, who is the 10th person on this list, so the the lowest paid representative represented here, makes somewhere around 300,000 US dollars per year. The president of the United States made 400,000 yeah. US dollars per year, right? Yeah. Unless there was a raise in the, I mean, I've always thought it was hilarious that almost every president we've had in the recent past had to take this massive pay cut to actually go do that job. And Singapore's, Singapore's GDP is $397 billion. So you're saying that these are folks that are running a $397 billion major operation. That seems to be the way that they they think about this. It is kind of wild. I mean, I get the just the spirit of this is service that you are giving to your country. Like this is not about you becoming wealthy. The spirit of that I get. I and then I'm I'm of a couple other minds here. From this tweet, there's the question of how do you attract talent? So there's that, which is what the tweet brings up. I'm also of the mind right now where I'm like, how do we get rid of some of this talent that's up in government right now? Well, I think we could pull that up. I, I got some ideas. Yeah, but because but if you're if you're pulling you know, a million dollars a year, it's probably going to be even more difficult to get you. Actually, no, man, I guess they... no. Listen, if you're a congressman over, let's call it 60, you have to listen to three hours of Dave, Dave Ramsey a day. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, you just you have can... to do it. We will we will pay you a million dollars a year. <laughs> but with that million, you have to do whatever Dave, Dave Ramsey says that you have to do with it. Ooh, okay. Too much. I can see, I I'm can sorry. See I'll, I'll, I'll stop throwing shade. Again, props to the people that he helps. Yeah. I need to do a deep dive. There's got to be a book on this. I'm going to I'm gonna try and do some more research. But I am all for, like, yeah, you're over there raising the points of like, oh, my goodness, do we really have this money? What's our annual budget? Trillion something? I mean, it used to yeah. be a trillion, and now it's three to five because we spend money like it's made on trees. But, like, it, it, I don't well, hold care on, if hold you... On. I think money is well, made out of trees. Well, it... Okay, good point. Uh, <laughs> Pay the president 15 million bucks a year. I don't care. What is that in the grand scheme of the trillions we're talking about? There shouldn't be jobs. Well, I'm probably a little too strong here. It, it's frustrating to me that there's jobs that in my life that I would not consider coming out of college simply because the pay wasn't in a spot that I thought could provide a, a basic quality of living. And I feel like some elected officials fall into that bucket. Maybe. And it's not, you're looking for the cream of the crop of 330 million people here. I don't know. I don't know that pay is a major reason as to why people do not go into government. I think government has a reputation for, I also believe this is true, but I think government has a reputation for the inability for you to accomplish anything. It's slow. It's bureaucratic. It's, you know, you can call it corrupt, you know, whatever you might want to call it. I, I think that's probably a bigger, bigger deal than the pay. Hop on a magic carpet with me and imagine something. Thanks, Dougals. Maybe it's all those things because you don't get the best and brightest. And I'm not, I'm so appreciative of all the people that serve our country or our town or our city. Like, I'm not upset or throwing shade at those, but I don't think we know. I don't think we've run yeah, a true experiment test. to say, yeah. what if, I mean, people like Jamie Dimon, right? Who runs JP Morgan Chase, he makes whatever. 50 million plus a year. Maybe it's 100 million. Maybe it's 200 million. Bill Aikman wants him to run for president. 
I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea, but if he is one of the best and brightest or fill in the name, like I'm just throwing out a name. It doesn't have to be him. He should, that should be a fair option if he wants to pursue that. And I don't feel like it is currently. Yeah. I don't know. These numbers confounded me though. <laughs> when I, when I just, when I was Googling with my fingertips, I did not expect what I just saw to pop up. I was thinking high wages are high wages, not in the millions though. It's wild. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do some more research. If we have listeners that are experts on either whether it's government compensation or the Singaporean government, let us know because I'm I'm definitely naive here. I just would love to see uh, a little more thought put behind this because uh, it's always baffled me. I think. All right, I'm gonna switch gears, reach into the fishbowl, and talk about inflation right quick. There was this paper from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund that came out this week, or maybe last week, but came out recently, called 100 Inflation Shocks, Seven Stylized Facts. This, I would say, is not a paper, even for the nerdiest among us, that's worth going and reading. But looking at research and history around some of this stuff can be interesting. So I'm just going to drop a couple items that should not be surprising, but uh, sometimes hammering these points home is good. So what they did was they went back and looked from 1970 plus they went and said, what are inflationary periods that are worth looking at to figure out what brought inflation down, what might have caused it, how long did it last, all that kind of stuff. And they ended up with roughly 100, which is the title of the paper, roughly 100 like different inflationary periods after eliminating some and whatnot. And here, here are what those seven stylized facts. That's a fancy title, by the way. But here's what those seven stylized facts are. One is inflation's persistent. Two is most unresolved inflation episodes involved premature celebrations. So people got all like on the high horses and said, we've conquered it too early. Three, countries that resolved inflation had tighter monetary policy. Four, countries that resolved inflation implemented restrictive policies more consistently over time. Five, countries that resolved inflation contained nominal exchange rate depreciation. Six, mm -hmm. Countries that resolved inflation had lower nominal wage growth. Seven, countries that resolved inflation experienced lower growth in the short term, but not over the five-year horizon. Those are what the seven stylized facts are. The one I am going to focus on that I think is worth hammering home is one that we've hit on a number of times here as well. And this gets to that first point, inflation is persistent. What they found was over these 100 inflation shocks, 60% of them were in the five-year plus time frame is how long it took and even if it was let if it took less than five years for inflation to go away on average average and median was like three and a half years that it took those points are important now if you go the reason i say this paper may not be as worthwhile to read through is because when you look at the methodology that they have and what what the data what the hundred data points are something like 60 of the hundred were the 1973 to 1979 period, just like in different countries. And so they're basically looking at one period as 60% of, of where the shocks came from. It's different countries. So you could say that there's more to study there, but yet and still. But I think that that point around inflation lasts for a while. And then if you marry that with the what uh, Jerome Powell repeated again this week is we are going to hold rates steady for a while. They're going to be higher for longer. And we might even raise again this year. This all tells that same narrative. I mean, yawn. <laughs>
<laughs> I looked at the data. I wasn't on the Americans in the Guardian survey that were 100% incorrect with uh, unemployment figures today. Like, I've seen this pretty consistently. Um, to your point about you shouldn't read this paper, it's like one of those, it's so bizarre, Douglas. In trying to read this paper, you have to click like five different times to download a PDF. Like, they won't even show you the facts. <laughs> they, they don't even have a summary table. That's how much they don't want people to read this paper. Well, even, um, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. You can't just say facts here. These are stylized facts. It's very important. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was my next point. What? Why do they have to call these stylized facts? <laughs> um, so, yes, inflation's got to be here for a while. This This takes me back to like six months ago when the consensus view was that the Fed was going to cut rates in 2023. <laughs> and you and I were both like, that is insane. It, like, yeah. Do you guys have no, and now that's completely disappeared. Unless there is some massive financial shock, it's basically considered a 0% probability that rates will get cut and potentially rates will get raised again this year. Rates are going to be higher for longer in all likelihood, but it's kind of been obvious from the start. And and yes, inflation's not going away. It's going to continue to be variable for at least the next, what? two or three years and maybe yeah. more. Yeah. And that's, that's why I raised this and use the paper in order just to say that again, let that sink in and sit in your head. That's all I'm saying. We don't know. We're not predicting the future, but it's just, I think it's a, it's a better bet and a safer place to have your expectations be that rates are going to be in this, as we talked about before, normal range for a while. It's not like we're sitting at 20% interest rates right now. We are sitting in a normal range of interest rates, and they are very likely going to be sitting in this general range for a little while. Just know that. And if you say we're sitting in a normal range, which I believe, I think it's pretty easy to argue that we're on the low end of that normal range still. Could, yeah, could be. We could be. Whew. But it, see, it does seem like it seems so surprising to a bunch of people when... Uh, I don't there's something so obvious. Like what, what Paul is saying is the same thing that they've been saying for a couple of years now, but it seems like it's surprising. So anyway, I think it's an important point to keep in folks' head just from an expectation setting perspective. Well, I think the thing that messed with people this week is um there was a question that said uh the question went something like this. It was like, is a soft landing the normal expectation, something along those lines? And he just said no. <laughs> um, which is like, there will be more pain and yeah. you see the effect on real estate, right? And then how critical real estate is to so many service industries, to construction costs, to everything else. And I think people are finally getting comfortable and this is a, it just sucks. It's a, it's a tough reality, but with the fact that we are probably in a brave new era, real estate wise, and there's going to be a lot of pain associated with that so that's not a prediction but it's just like you know you and i have debated that for months now yeah the ramifications that are potentially massive one of the things i like to do in just general life is when something feels emotionally because i think a lot of this can come down to emotion when something feels emotionally out of whack for you like you just can't believe it get all up in arms go forward 50 years and think about what someone would say looking at this time period objectively and like, like here's, here's an example sentence. I cannot believe the point in American history where interest rates were 6%. You go, actually, 
that is very believable. <laughs> like, you know, and so like, if if that's the case, I think it's it's easier to go, okay, like this is a pretty normal range because someone looking at this in the future is going to look at this and go, things just kind of came back to normal. What they'll probably say is, I can't believe that for over a decade, there was free money floating around <laughs> is, is more likely. What's it, like someone's going to look at the last 15 year period as the the strange like blip in the radar and not whatever we're looking at right now, I would say. I mean, I know what I'm going to say 10 years from now. I'm going to be like, I I cannot believe that Bidenomics caused uh, 50% unemployment, the worst ever. (laughs) 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 And that was the toughest time. Yes. It was America was a third world country then, basically. What what I what I'd actually love for folks to do is to look at like provide people with a chart of historical unemployment and a chart of the S&P 500, like just historically, those two charts, break it into four year segments and have people label it with the party of the president. During those just times. over there poking the bear because this happens all the time. These charts are readily available. And if you don't know who is president, who leads Congress does not matter at all. <laughs> well, this, this is yeah, this is it's my complete point. nonsense. Any talking point that relates to this, this party is better for X is usually garbage, like 95% of the time. What I will say for I'm so I'm not a political. I don't know, strategist by any means, but I'm going to give one little piece of political strategy advice. Biden, if you were planning on using the economy as your platform to run on, look the results of this survey before you decide to go and do that. Because people are not thinking that we are in any sort of a strong economy right now. Good, sir. Uh, Listen, if Biden was a president of Singapore, he'd have enough money to do the Ross Perot thing and mm. buy a 30-minute spot, and then he could stand up with some pie charts and help educate <laughs> some folks. But no, he's in the poorhouse. He can't do that. Um, I'm laughing at all the people who don't know who Ross Perot is because they're too young listening mm. to this show. And we've gone off the rails, Diggles. This is what happens when you record a podcast from Vegas. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate you sticking with us through this Vegas-fueled podcast episode. Please uh, send us listener mail. We're going to cover some that we already mentioned next week. SkippyDougals at gmail.com. We got premium subscriptions. Help to support the show. SkippyDougals.supercast.com. Check out the Substack as well. Uh, and we'll be hitting all the articles that we talked about today and more and more in that Substack. So thank you, everybody. Thanks, guys.